In the current Sports Illustrated, there's a story about 10 of the reporters who were assigned the job of covering the University of Florida Gators team. And there's a quarterback on that team, Danny Warfell, who is particularly attractive since he's the lead quarterback in the conference and also the likely candidate for the Heisman Award. His score is magnificent. He's an outstanding student. And as the Gainesville Sun says, he's too good to be true. He doesn't go to the drinking parties or the bars. He's a hardworking student. He never uses bad language. He has a very obvious control of his temper and is what the team calls a quiet place in the center of the hurricane. Even Coach Spurrier says that he's one who very often stabilizes him when he tends to lose himself uh, in the thick of, uh, of the tensions and stress of competition. He just refused a rather lucrative award from Playboy magazine, the 1996 National Scholar Athletes Award, saying that his values and those of Playboy were just incompatible and he wasn't interested. And so these reporters decided to do what reporters often decide to do, and that is to find the other side of Danny Warfield feeling that there's got to be some skeletons in the closet somewhere. What they did was followed him around for some time and discovered that he rides his bike on campus with his bag of books slung over his back and in the bag is also a Bible. And they find that he is very very consistent in his practice of Bible study and prayer, a prayer that begins in the morning and that ends on his knees at night. And it's a prayer that carries him through every single day, and therefore even the writers of Sports Illustrated have called the article Answered Prayer. A remarkable young man who feels that he has a task in life which is first of all and always related to God. And as the coach has said, if he would list the values of Danny, it is God, family, school, and then says the coach, perhaps, football. Quite an admission for a coach to make, I would say. But I wonder what people would say about us if they tried to give that kind of resume 
And if they would follow us around very critically, would they see another Daniel? He reminds me of the Daniel of the Old Testament. Another young man who found himself in a very foreign land and a rather countercultural situation. He was known for his prayers, and that is exactly where they attacked him. But Daniel refused to give in, finished the contest in the lion's den. But people were to learn that he was serious, he was consistent. It was not something that he did only at times. It wasn't a practice for the public to notice. It was something from his heart. It was something that he lived by. And it was something that defined him. What he would be, what he would say, what he would do. It was all seated and surrounded in prayer. I'm not sure that we are not often like the disciples. We pray. We pray here in church, at home, and I trust on other occasions. But sometimes prayers seem to be rather sterile. They hit the ceiling and bounce back not seeming to go anywhere, making little difference in life. We don't seem to get any power from them, and somehow we don't understand what's wrong. And like the disciples, we come to Jesus then and we say, what is prayer all about, Lord? Teach us to pray. For what they saw in Jesus was a praying person who found in prayer a, a sense of peace within and a very great dynamic in life. For he came from praying with that, that look about him, that strength within him that was noticeable and obvious. Remember when he went to pray on that mountain top. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration because that is where prayer transformed him and the disciples that, would, that went with him could see it. It was so obvious. He was shining and radiant with the glory of God. Like Moses, who came down from Mount Sinai, recall, the people wondered what had happened to him. He had been with God, of course. And it was an obvious thing. That's what prayer is. Being with God. And there are times when we are especially with him, and there are other times, and most of the times when we pray are like that. They are times of prayer that are daily prayers done because we, we enjoy the relationship and we, 
We crave it. We depend upon it. We long for it. As a heart pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for thee, O God, exclaims the psalmist. It's a dry time when God is not present in life. And we know it. And for Jesus, it was all times. The secular and the sacred were one and the same. That word secularis means of the world. And the things of the world and the things of God, they were all to him intermingled, for this was God's world, his, his Father's world. And he wants us to know this and to live in the context of prayer. And so when the disciples came and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, all right, this is the way you begin. Our Father, who art in heaven, you have a Father. And then he said on another occasion, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things unto babes. Yea, Father, for such was your gracious will. Little children who, who understand fatherhood perhaps better than those of us who are adults. A little child who welcomes daddy home from work at night who jumps in his lap because there is love and security as, as father embraces the little child and takes him or her to his heart. His love, his care, his sacrifices, willingly, happily made for the little child. That's our God. And prayer is simply finding that sense of security, that strength in the presence of the God whom we know loves us, a God who is the maker of heaven and earth. And in that context, we go about our daily tasks. God is indeed as close and nearer than breathing, or than our hands and feet, as the poet has said. There's a, an awareness of that being who lives with us and in us and through us, and who thereby makes us what we are and helps us to do what we need to do and to, to say what we need to say. He's the God with whom we begin the day, the God who, who is always there counseling us as we talk to him quietly within our hearts, moment by moment. And the God with whom we close our eyes at night, knowing that he will be with us when we are no, con no longer conscious of what is going on about us, he is always there watching. And he will pierce that world, too, and reach into the quietness of our subconscious while we are at rest. 
and we wake up again to a new day, the day the Lord has made, with a task compatible with his own. That kind of strength is what Jesus had. And it wasn't all sunshine for him and ease. Implicit in prayer is the fact that prayer does impact our lives, if it is truly prayer. And for Jesus, it meant all of that. He had a very brief ministry, you recall, only three and a half years. He saw the suffering multitudes, didn't heal them all, made no attempt to do so. And then came his, his time to die. And while he came to give his life, as he said, yet he would rather have not had to go through it. And he shied away from it, finally articulating the facts in the Garden of Gethsemane, and prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. It was like Paul, who learned so well from Jesus, and yet also with his thorn in the flesh, cried the same thing. Take this thorn in the flesh from me. And in both cases, God said, no. I'll give you grace to bear it. I'll be with you when you go through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will not take it from you. For my will overshadows your suffering. And the fact that you do not understand it demands faith on your part. Trust me. And Jesus trusted the Father. And he said, your will be done. And Paul found strength from the Father, the grace to bear what he had to bear while he lived. And Jesus said, now glorify yourself through me, for that was the secret. I believe the secret of prayer, dear friends, is to relinquish control. The secret of prayer is to subordinate yourself to God. And too many of us today are looking for how we can tap the resources of God for ourselves. And our prayers are largely petitions centering on our own lives. And they are far too often not a prayer that we want to be used for God to do what he has in mind for that particular moment or day or year. What does he have for us? That wise, all-powerful, good and just and true being who will that we should be here on this earth. 
the one who gave us all things, even his only son. Why should we not ask him, Father, what do you want of me today? I know it's the best. And then listen and follow. But that is so difficult. We always want to monitor how things are going in life. Want God to stamp approval on what we have conceived as the good in life. Our plans must override his often in our minds or we become very frantic with concern, afraid of loss of something like reputation or position or earthly goods as though that is a greater loss than the loss of the presence of God. Prayer is trusting God with our lives. It's often so difficult not to help him. Like the little boy who prayed, you remember, at the dinner table before Christmas, and he said, oh, Lord, bless this food and mother and dad. And he went on with his prayer. And then he said, and, and I need some ice skates for Christmas, Lord. And his mother said, son, you don't have to shout so loud. God isn't deaf. He said, no, but grandmother doesn't hear very well. <laughs> if we're going to pray to God, then let's pray to God. And all that that word God means, Jesus said it means Father. And in that social structure in which our Lord grew up, Father was the one who provided the stability and who gave identity to the family and to the home. Prayers are always valid. God doesn't work without them. It's his way of reaching into our lives and the life of our culture and society. And we never know where prayer will lead. I was reading the other day once again that story of 1932 outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, a small group of businessmen, some dairymen, went to the clergy and said in this time of immorality, of difficulty, depression years, you recall, poverty looked like a hopeless situation. He said, people are turning their backs on God. We ought to have a revival in our city. And the clergy said no. So 29 of them gathered outside of town, and then they gathered again. And a couple of times they gathered on a dairyman's farm, a man who had a son for whom he was very concerned, wanted to reach him somehow. And they all prayed that God would guide them. And finally, in 1933, they bought a little tent and held a small 
service outside the city. And the response was amazing. So they continued to pray and they finally organized a citywide crusade. They persuaded Mordecai Ham to come and speak. And this evangelist did, and that young son of the dairy farmer went. And there he felt that irresistible urge to get up and walk to the front and to claim Christ as his Lord and as his Savior. The young man's name was Billy Graham. Little did those men know what they were praying for, but they prayed for a man who has become known throughout the world as a spokesman for God. Another man that the press has pursued but cannot find anything in what is supposed to be another kind of dimension to life that professing Christians always live. Prayer and its power is amazing. We've seen it documented all through history. Ben Franklin said, as you recall, when our union was about to fall apart in its very beginning stages, he said, do you suppose that God is unconcerned with the rise of a nation? We ought to be praying. And so they did. And so they saved what looked like a hopeless cause and gave birth to this country. In the beginning days of the church, it was prayer, as you see in Acts. The book of the scripture that talks about the beginnings, when they gave themselves to prayer, daily prayer. And when you find that prayer meant so much to those who were fighting that alien empire. And it's meant so much to the church ever since. We found it out just recently here in this congregation. When we prayed repeatedly in our homes, in privacy, here in the church, for the leading of God, and he led us to a new senior pastor for whom we could all give our hearty support. What a marvel of the grace of God. And one would have to be totally spiritually insensitive not to realize the spirit that moved among us as we cast over 97% of the votes, an unheard of number in a congregation this size, all in favor of God's choice. That's what we wanted. And individually, it's no different. He works with us as individuals. Do we really want his choice for us? Are we really looking for it? Do you pray for it? When you, when you rise up in the morning, when you retire at night, all through the day, are you looking for his choice? Have you really made that surrender, that commitment through prayer? Things happen. 
In fact, they don't happen without it. Our deepest sins, our addictions, cannot be overcome without prayer. AA knows this. And so does everyone who has been caught in the grip, in the vice lock of sin. We need to come to a point where we say, Lord, I cannot, you can. And open our hearts to him. I trust that God will, will lead you in your prayer life. That we will continue as a people, as individuals, and also as citizens of this country to make ourselves the vehicles of his grace, the conduits of his blessings. As we learn how to pray continually, being joyous and in every situation giving thanks. Let us pray. Lord God, what a great and wonderful gift you've given us. The right in Christ to be bold in approaching your throne. The privilege in Christ to come to you and call you Father. Thank you for your Son, our elder brother in the faith. Thank you for the Spirit who makes him live within us and who guides us. And may your will be done through us. And may we give ourselves wholeheartedly to you in prayer, day by day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.